Today we're going to be in the book of Jude, and the last time we started Jude's short but powerful letter and left off with the importance of why it was important to contend for the faith. Why did the Holy Spirit lead Jude to speak about that? Uh, We talked about self. When self is on the throne, it leads to pride, and pride leads to rebellion, and rebellion certainly against God and then any other authority. So these false teachers of the day were very prideful. They couldn't accept that there were other men of God doing the same thing. We all work together as the body of Christ. Uh, Somebody with a high inflated opinion of themselves can't be equal with others at the foot of the cross. They have to do something. There has to be some type of nuance where they can stand out from everybody else and maybe tweak the truth a little bit just so he can say or she can say, check this out, we've got something that uh, you're not going to find in the Bible. Uh, Jude continues with verse 12. We're going to start with today, talk about this type of person. Why? Well, he did say that certain men crept in unnoticed into the church. Uh, They infiltrated the church. And even in our application today, we can see that a lot of Christianity is becoming watered down. If you take 10 churches at random, you'll find a good number of them really don't preach the word or they don't want to talk about hell. They don't want to leave anybody with a downer message for the rest of the day. Uh, It's all about hype. It's all about uh, getting people excited, tickling their emotions. And uh, certainly that's not reflected in the scripture. The scripture with the bitter comes the sweet. So today we're going to start jumping in with verse 12. He continues, these are spots, these People, these false teachers, they're spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. So we're going to go through some of these, um, you know, character descriptions. Number one, they infiltrate love feasts. In those days, you know, today we do communion, a lot of churches, you know, at a regular basis, the bread and and the wine, and, and we remember the Lord. It's a corporate experience, but it's also individual. Uh, back then, it was a little bit more to it. Uh, they would have actually dinner with each other. They would eat, sort of like with Jesus and his disciples at the Last Supper, and then they would celebrate communion, remember the Lord's death until he comes. But these guys would come in. There really was no focus on the Lord. There was no fear of the Lord. Uh, They only had their own agenda. They were out to serve themselves. Now, the word spots doesn't come out too well in the English, but in the Greek, it's really a picture of a reef or something just below the water, some type of debris or or jutting. And then when the ship would pass by, it it would tear the hull, causing it to take on water and then sink. So again, we miss a lot uh, sometimes in the English, but this was pretty serious business, uh, the way these guys kind of uh, perpetrated themselves. Two, they were clouds without water carried by the wind. Again, we see an overlap in Second Peter. You see clouds coming, you're a farmer, you know, your crops are going to get watered, and then a tempest comes and kind of just blows the clouds away and there's not a drop of water. Well, in a spiritual sense, these guys had an appearance of uh, spiritual, you know, Jesus spoke about the living waters and uh, that would flow out of one when a person came to Christ. And these false teachers had an appearance of there was a spirituality, but it never was materialized, no spiritual water. Uh, Third, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Twice dead. We know that when we're born into this world, we're sinners. We're born in the flesh. And unless we're born again of the Spirit, there's no hope for us in eternity. Uh, and, and, and many who reject God's way of salvation will face the second death. So these guys are dead once. There's, a, 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 again, a facade of producing spiritual fruit, but there's really nothing produced. 
Uh, I have a fig tree that I've had for two years. And every year this fig tree gets bigger and it, there's more figs on it. But every fall, I look at the thing and there's like 25 figs and they never mature. Maybe somebody can help me with that after service. <laughs> but it's just kind of annoying me. You know, I've even pulled some of them off in the fall and left them on my countertop. Nothing happens. So, you know, in a sense, these spiritual leaders are twice dead, pulled up by the roots because they're a, a fruit tree or some type of bearing tree that doesn't bear anything. Again, there's a facade of that, but nothing actually comes to pass. Uh, verse 13, he says that they're raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. The fourth uh, descriptor here is the raging waves of the sea, foaming to their own shame. Now, my wife and I like to walk on the beach and watch the, the surf come in, and uh, you can see when the waves break, uh, there's a lot of noise, right? But just as quickly as the noise comes in, it, it subsides and washes back out. So there, these guys, are. there's a lot of fanfare, a lot of noise, but really nothing to them. Uh, we also know it says foaming up to their own shame. Uh, we also know that in a rough surf, the ocean brings in debris from the, from the ocean and throws it up on the shore. I, mean, I don't know if you remember years ago, there was a, a scandal with the hospitals were dumping bio-waste into the oceans, and people were seeing them on the seashore. With, with a rough surf, hypodermic needles and stuff would litter the beaches, and you couldn't use them. So foaming up to their own shame, the foam brings in just a lot of the junk from the sea. And it's a good description because these guys, the louder they get, their, their true colors will eventually come out in, in terms of what they bring up, right? Uh, the fifth point, wandering stars. Now the Greek word is astere. Uh, not Fred astere, but more like asteroid in the English, okay? Uh, this is a, a meteoroid or a planetoid or... You know, if you look out in the, in the stars, you look out at, at the sky, and sometimes the word star is a misnomer. Does, sometimes you could see, depending on what kind of equipment you have, if it's a clear day, certain planets, sometimes Venus. Venus will really reflect the sun's light. And you can, you know, see it. It's pretty much in the same spot, and you can navigate by that. When something is stable and it, and it produces light, uh, years ago, before all this fancy equipment, that's the way that the, the guys... Um, on the ships would navigate their way across the vast ocean where all you could see was water. But these guys were like wandering stars. This is a person that um, is, is endemic or reflective of a, a meteoroid or a chunk of debris that comes from space, enters the Earth's atmosphere, and because of heat and friction, it starts to glow really bright, but it moves, it shifts, and then the light disappears and it becomes a meteorite. But the point is that these guys, they don't provide direction. They don't provide spiritual navigation, and even the light that they're producing is only short-lived. So these, again, there's so much to these descriptors. And he says what's reserved for them, ironically, is the uh, blackness of darkness forever. So the same uh, um, promise of light that was never delivered, spiritual light, now they're going to get in return. Um, when I grew up, I was, uh, grew up in New York. I was a city boy. Uh, day and night, there'd be street lights. We'd play out in the streets and such. And then the schools were getting to be a problem, so my mom moved us to the Poconos. So I was in Pocono Mountain and met a different group of friends and not really a whole lot to do, but we would go to like the mountains and, and it would be completely on a dark night when there was nothing out. Uh, shut the car lights off and you could, the, the, the darkness was oppressive. It was almost like it, it, it encompassed every crevice of your body. You know, you're like groping. 
even in the, um, in the plagues of Egypt, uh, the plague of darkness, it said that the darkness was so thick that it could be felt. So it's very oppressive. This is going to be very oppressive for these guys to live like this in eternity. And, you know, what I get out of this is, you've ever heard the expression, all, no, all show and no go. No depth of character. Many shallow wells in society in the, with the pretense of Christianity or, or spirituality. And I would ask, how many are seduced or mesmerized by personality cults? We see that in the faith back then, and it's no different now. Now with multimedia, you know, with uh, cameras and internet and such, you know, there's just such a mesmerization of personality cult. Now instead of, uh, I mean, really to say, wow, my past is great, we love him, he's funny, he's this, he's that, that's one thing. But to actually say, no, you should check out our church, why? Because the word of God is opened up and the pastor explains the word of God. Similar, but miles apart, right? Get away from personality cults and get back into why do we do what we do? Why do we believe what we believe? I know Pastor Anthony, my assistant pastor, and if I was to die today, I know that he would come in and he would still discern the word of God. Otherwise, I'd turn over in my grave. (laughs) But I know he's a great guy, and I know that he's, we're on the same sheet of music. My elders, you know, uh, my staff, it's, it's about the word of God. If you want to do something else and get fancy and leave God behind, you can be a leader somewhere else because it isn't going to happen here. Uh, verse 14, he says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Enoch, you can find him in Genesis 5. This was one of the few times in Scripture where uh, the person didn't die in a sense by normal means, and we don't know that he even died, but we know that while he was still living, the Lord took him. We see that with Elijah. Uh, We know that Moses' body was buried, but this guy was pretty, you know, he walked with God. He was a real godly man. Now, this quote actually doesn't come from our Bible. It comes from a book called the Book of Enoch. Uh, And it says, it says this quote right here. And this is about the judgment that's going to happen to those that are that ungodly. Ungodly is used four times here. We see the word ungodly is used to permeate every facet of, of this person's life. Now, just to give you a little side note here, Paul also, in his work, the Apostle Paul, quoted sources that were not necessarily sacred scripture. I've read the Maccabees and Bell and the Dragon and the Gospel of Thomas. You know, we don't, ha- we don't take the, the position, you, you know, book burning. You can't read that. Read it. It doesn't add or take away from the Gospel. Uh, some works were inspired scripture and some were more historical. I'll give you an example. Uh, Maccabees, in the beginning, the author says, at this time, uh, the Lord didn't speak to anyone and there were no revelations. So he's basically saying, I'm writing a history book because I'm one of those people. He didn't claim to be inspired, but it was a very good picture of the Hesmonian dynasty and some of the things that happened in history. So no scandal there. Uh, Enoch's prophecy wasn't good for these guys. And, And it really is an encouragement to us when we see injustice in society, especially in the name of religion. Verse 16 says, these are murmurers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Now, more of those that have gotten into the church and have kind of infiltrated the church, 
And it's not that we now become hypersensitive and the first person that complains, Pastor Joe, we've got to kick that person out. They're murmurers and complainers. This is a, a pervasive, permeating attitude. It's through the whole person's being. It pervades their lifestyle. Right? Every time you deal with this person, they're a downer. And not because of a circumstance or the loss of a loved one. Just That's just the way they are. All right? Murmurer, complainer, other synonyms, grumbler, malcontent, everything's a scandal, the sky is always falling. No joy, peace, or contentment because they're of the flesh and they feed off of problems in the flesh. Now, again, it doesn't mean that we can't have bad days and we're not off once in a while or we don't respond to circumstances in our lives. But when, this is, when your face is associated with, oh, here she comes again, I wonder what she's going to say, or here, here he is, you know, what's he going to complain about this time? Uh, it's not a good reputation to have. Uh, basically, someone that offers uh, problems with no solutions. And I've got to tell you, that's what I love about leadership, especially leadership here, where Pastor Anthony or somebody will come to me and say, here's the problem that we have. And then they'll uh, present to me a solution that they've prayed about and fixing it. And most th- nine times out of ten, I'm like, that's a great idea. You know, if you're going to offer a problem, offer a solution. Pray about it to go with the problem. Don't just... Just complain about something, leave it on somebody's lap, and then disappear. That's not, it's not a good thing to do. Two, they walk according to their own lusts. Their behavior is more commensurate with the works of the flesh than the fruits of the Spirit. And three, they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Now, there is a difference between being friendly and being flattering, you know, um, you've seen those that try to flatter you, especially if they're trying to sell you something. They'll tell you how smart you are, how charismatic you are, how whatever the case may be, you know, you're so brilliant that you need this product. And, and I know that I'm, I'm confident in your abilities that you're going to buy this product. So you almost kind of feel roped in with this flattery. Another uh, one of Aesop's fables that I remember as a kid, uh, the fox and the crow and the cheese. This was great. The crow... Uh, takes this big chunk of cheese she finds, and she flies up to the tree and perches in uh, the branches, and she's really getting set to eat this cheese. And the fox comes along, can't get up there, can't get the cheese, so what he does is he starts flattering the crow, tells her how beautiful she is, and, you know, if your voice is anything like your appearance, boy, it must be something to behold. So he flatters her so much that she starts to sing and drops the piece of cheese. Fox takes it and runs off. That's flattery. (laughs) Be careful of flatterers, right? They they want something from you. That's an important thing to look at. So now that we've looked at all this, sometimes we come to, in our mind, a a picture of what someone looks like based on the descriptors, which can be dangerous to do. A person may be handsome, well-dressed, polite, uh, smell nice, you know, uh, hair is done very impeccably, whatever the case may be. A female, she may be sweet disposition, matronly, maybe a young mommy with children. And you say, well, that can't be. Sometimes they're the worst ones. The best appearances, the ones who are coming into the church to cause problems, they're the ones that usually will gain some sort of a following. And then when you try to discipline them, their teeth come out, their true colors, and they pretty much dare you to deal with them. So it's, you know, we can never, in our society, we look too much at appearance, you know, if, I, if I describe something to you, you may in your mind have an appearance of what somebody looks on like, and that's dangerous. Because you know in the scripture that it says that man does look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Sometimes a hard thing to see maybe takes prayer and some time 
before you get to see what the heart looks like. Verse 17. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions not having the spirit. But you, beloved, here's a dichotomy between two walks of life. This is what these guys are doing, but you. Scripture often does that. We're not to be in the same uh, jumble mix with the rest of the world. We're supposed to stand out. We're supposed to reflect the light of Christ. But you, beloved, don't get caught up in the drama, even maybe with those close to you, geographically, familiar-wise. Don't get caught up in that drama. Your job is to remember the words that were spoken by the apostles, handed down by the Holy Spirit. Focus. Back then and today, it's no different. We have a job. We are to be separate. We're to be holy. And it's not an easy thing to do, but it's a a lifelong quest if we call ourselves believers. Do we have the courage to stay away from mockers? Do we have the courage to stay away from the activities even of our friends who call themselves Christians, but we know that they're carnal? They may be funny. They may be popular, right? Right? Uh, And a a lot of their popularity may be based on their carnality. Do we have the courage to say no? Either they mock holiness outright, or they mock God with their behavior. Now, I will say this, that uh, for teenagers, and especially for you in your 20s, would I like to go back 20 years and not have all the aches and pains and, you know, have my body of a 20-year-old? Sure, but I don't think I would want to walk again as a 20-year-old. It's not an easy world. For those of you young people, I want to encourage you. I see the struggles that you go through. I know the pressures and the peer pressure. I understand. Believe me, I talk to young folks all the time. Uh, So I just want to encourage you. That strength is available to you. You can do it. You can walk with the Lord. Understand the same thing that's available to everyone here is available to you. Uh, so I just want to encourage you there. And if you're still having struggles and you want to blow up some, uh, some steam, then come with us November 20th and play paintball with us. All right? <laughs> There's good outlets for that. Uh, verse 18 and 19. Mockers in the last days. And we spoke about this in Second Peter. There, again, there's a lot of overlap, and we talked about that last Sunday. Uh, but they walk according to their own godly lusts. They have a form of religion based on their lifestyles instead of based on what the scripture says. Uh, The word is very interesting. It's sensual. And we have an idea of what sensual is, but the literal word in the Greek is soul-ish, right? Sometimes we'll hear uh, body and soul. Now, if that's together, uh, it's a dichotomy between literally the physical and everything else. Or in the scripture, depending, it could be dichotomous or trichotomous, three, body, soul, and spirit. Now, in that case, the spirit is is particularly the part that is connected to God, but the soul, in that sense, is the mind. Suke, where we get the word psychology from. So follow the logic here. The person is soulish. Uh, They live according to worldly reason and not spiritual. They walk by sight and not by faith. I was having a discussion with a friend years ago who struggled with addictions, and we were having a lively discussion and he said, well, the Bible, somewhere in the Bible it says everything is good in moderation. I went like this with the phone. I said, you didn't just say that. <laughs> I said, it doesn't say that in there. And let me tell you why that's a problem. 
So the person is soulish, they're worldly, they see according to the world, according to what they see on TV, according to the culture. You know, we can't follow some of this stuff in the scripture because it happened 2,000 years ago and things have changed. You know, we got to keep God up with the tempo of what's going on around us. And we see that sometimes in universalism or some of these emerging, emergent church types of, of uh, scenarios where they even talk about a uh, something that the Bible calls evil, but they say, well, let's give it five years and see how the culture changes, and then let's see if we really believe that the Bible is still condemning that. That is very dangerous. That's soulish. You see, this applies to the here and now. This is a veneer of Christianity without the Christ. This is a veneer of spirituality without the Spirit. Remember when I quoted Jesus saying, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Again, it's ridiculous. He'll see churches, he'll see steeples, he'll see denominations, he'll see the name Jesus. But will he find faith on the earth? True faith. Or will it be so watered down and so gutted that the Lord doesn't recognize it? That's a frightening thought. But we're seeing that today. Spirituality without the Spirit, Christianity without the Christ. Christmas without the Christ, right? We, we all complain about that. But, and we also see the resurgence of, uh, maybe some of you have heard this, the social gospel, which was really big in the 20th century until World War I and II came, and then they said, gee, uh, maybe this isn't going to work. But the social gospel was something that started where, there were some elements of it that were good. They were saying basically that, well, if we are Christians, we should help the poor and do all these things, and that's right. But that became so works-based, and it became so above the gospel that the gospel wasn't being preached anymore. Don't give any money to a missionary that doesn't preach the gospel. It's useless. You're just making other people in the world wealthy. So they can be wealthy like Americans are wealthy. But where are they, where's their spirit? So a lot of the, even missionaries today are, are giving schools and giving hospitals, but there's no Christ in it. So what's the sense? Uh, social gospel actually got to the point where there was a, a theology that the Christian church was going to change the world. And when the, church, the, the world was, was beautiful and acceptable because of this social gospel, the Lord was going to say, okay, now I'm ready, I can come down, because they fixed everything for me. And they became post-millennialists, right? The Lord returned after the millennium. Uh, so here's the problem, or here's the, the point. There's been, a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of statistics done on we're losing the youth, you know? We're losing the youth to Christ, be careful with that, because if you really look at the statistics, the youth are turned off by churchy people. They're turned off by all the rules and regulation. They're turned off by the outward appearances, and we don't accept them. They're wearing the wrong type of earrings. They have blue hair. They can't come into church. That's what they're turned off by. Young people are not turned off by Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is attractive to everyone. The truth about Jesus, the true Jesus, is attractive to a 10-year-old as it is to a 100-year-old. So let's be careful and make that, understand that difference there. Uh, verse 19, it said, Some walk by the flesh, or the ones that walk in the flesh, will naturally cause division in the church with those that walk into the Spirit. Because in the church, if you have those walking in the flesh and those walking in the Spirit, it's like being unequally yoked in a marriage. One's pulling one way and the other one is pulling another way and it will naturally cause that division that we see here in the scripture. Uh, and sadly, not everyone who calls themselves a Christian has the desires for the things of God, which is, again, kind of bizarre. Verse 20. Again, he says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, 
keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ into eternal life. But you, beloved, again, brothers and sisters, there must be a difference between us and what the world looks like. Is there? Is there a difference in my life and my unsaved neighbor? Right? That's an important uh, question to ask. And Jude is trying to make sure we understand which road we need to be on. Jesus said there are two roads, the narrow road, which few find, and that is the way to eternal life, or the wide road, which pretty much everybody's on. So we need to make sure we're on the proper road. Now, the first but you was to walk away from and separate ourselves. The second but you was to build ourselves up. Now, here's what's interesting. In the beginning of this letter, we spoke about how Jude said, I want to talk to you about our common faith, but it is more needful that you contend earnestly for the faith. There were circumstances of that time that had to be addressed. What's really neat is it's almost like the Holy Spirit basically said to him, you pretty much did what I asked you to do. Now let's talk about the common faith again. So he really comes full circle and starts to really encourage them and build them up with their common faith. And we all like that part. The first part is, number one, our responsibility in our relationship with God. Verses 20 and 21. He says, build yourselves up. Now, whether that's Greek or English grammar, sentence structure, that's considered reflexive. You build yourself up. Before I came to church today, I washed myself so I would be presentable to your olfactory uh, senses, right? Yeah, good. Everybody's got biology down. That's excellent. But it's reflexive. You build yourself up on your most holy faith. Is your spiritual house, ladies and gentlemen, on a strong foundation? Or is it a dilapidated shack? I love the book of Haggai where the prophet says, Pastor Anthony taught that. He said uh, to the people, the children of Israel, you know, you guys are fixing up your homes. You got paneled houses. That was the thing back then. It came back in the 70s. But... Uh, you know, he says, but my temple is in disrepair. My house is in disrepair. Now, if we take a spiritual application, is our temple of the Holy Spirit as believers, again, is it on a, a weak foundation? Is it on sand? Or is it on a strong foundation? Is God truly our strength and our high tower? Two, to be praying in the Holy Spirit. Jesus spoke about, and we're going to cover this in the Gospels. I love the Gospels. Jesus spoke about the difference between staged prayer the religious leaders at the time would prepare prayers and they would, as they were praying, they would read these prayers. You're talking to God when you pray. It's not to be staged. What I love, and, and when we uh, came together Wednesday night, I, I did 1 Samuel 5, is uh, whenever we come together on a Wednesday, I say, listen, I want us all to pray. So when the message is over, just pray. And I always stress this. Some of you may not pray because you're not accustomed to praying and you may stumble over your words. Those are the best prayers. Because you can see that someone is, as they're praying, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to find the words to talk to their Father in heaven. That's beautiful prayer. Not the staged, flowery, ye, yo, master of the universe. I mean, it's cool, but it's not to be staged. So praying in the Holy Spirit is really talking to God. It's that heartfelt prayer. Three, keep yourself in the love of God. Again, this is reflexive. You keep yourself in the love of God. You do it to yourself. Jesus commands us in John 15 to abide. Now, other synonyms for abide are to stay, to remain, to continue. 
John 15, 9, Jesus says, continue in my love. Continue. We have a responsibility. The fourth point is to look for the expectation of, of the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Now, of course, we look for bouts of mercy here. When we were praying for that young girl in the hospital, Lord, mercy. We pray for mercy for this young girl. When we go through things, Lord, we pray for mercy. Or if we really mess up, Lord, please, no justice this time. I'd like some mercy and grace in this situation. But we also look for a future where we get to be joined more fully to God, the full redemption, and that full mercy uh, is, is, is completely understood and realized. Verse 22, And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. This is our responsibility now in the second category with others, with the rest of us at the foot of the cross, especially those involved in sin, or in this case, possibly those believers that Jude was addressing the more mature believers about those believers that were um, being duped by the false teachers and how to handle, uh, depending on the, uh, the magnitude of was somebody actually now becoming a disciple where they just kind of go into that following. So this is what he says. He kind of breaks up the categories. Number one, on some have compassion. I like that. My, my question would be, on some have compassion. Lord, do I get to choose which ones? <laughs> Feeling bad for somebody that maybe, you know, blindly or, or innocently got themselves involved in something they shouldn't have got themselves involved with. Number two, making the distinction regarding others. Save them with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating the garment, defiled by the flesh. That is heavy, and there's a lot to that. Now, the word for pull them is the same word harpazo in the Greek as the rapture, a violent snatching away. Now, we know when the Lord calls us home, he calls us home. He pulls us away from this corrupting uh, influence of the world and the judgments that are going to be rained down on that. So here, in a sense, it's like a mini rapture. We help to pull another believer out of something that they, you, that they shouldn't be involved in, and you're trying to help them out of it. Um, but it's a different context. Now, if a brother or sister is involved in something that bad, number one, don't fall for the waterworks. Don't be manipulated. Don't let them give you conditions. Uh, don't be influenced. Be the stronger believer. Now, I will say this, that there are, unfortunately, drugs are rampant. Drugs, alcohol, addictions, now uh, pornography, and all this kind of, people are addicted to everything. When you're dealing with addicts, you've got to be firm you got to show them tough love. Don't let them manipulate you because they'll do it time and time again. Even when they're not consciously doing it, subconsciously, they manipulate. Right? So that's, that's one, one situation, but it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, for addicts. Save them out of love, but burn their garments. Let me give you an example. Okay, real-life example. And I'm not saying that everybody should do this. Certainly, we should pray before we engage in anything of this magnitude. But... My wife did prison ministry for years, and uh, there was a, a young lady who had a child. She's in prison, of course. The kid was in foster. And when she would get out of prison, she would do drugs. She was a heroin addict. And when she couldn't get the drugs, she would do bad things to get the drugs. So she comes out of prison, gets a hold of my wife, and says, I don't want to fall back into that situation again. You know, I know it's going to happen if I go back home. So my wife comes to me. <laughs> And she says, um, <clears throat> it's only for 10 days. Uh, we're going to send her somewhere where she can really dry out and, and you know, be ministered to and such. But can she live with us? I'm like, all right. Um, 
here was, the, here was the deal. The rules were she couldn't call anybody. She couldn't take an aspirin out of the medicine cabinet. She couldn't drive anywhere. Nobody could come to the house unless it went through us first. We were serious. Now, some of you may say, gee, I'd hate to live with you guys. <laughs> My wife and I are intense people, but we love deeply. You know, just the act of doing that. And I'll tell you what, talking about burning the clothes that defile, none of her clothes were appropriate. We took her to church, etc. cetera. Um, we actually had to buy her a whole new wardrobe. So the point I'm trying to make is that ministry is messy. People come with problems, right? If you can't roll up your sleeves and, and put yourself aside and sacrifice for somebody else, don't get involved in ministry. And if you're looking for something greater than yourself and you're looking for God to really take the shallowness out of you and, and put some depth into your character, pray about it. Lord, what example? Help me to, to, to find an example. Lord, have your spirit show me to be sensitive to somebody who's struggling. Maybe not to that, that depth, but uh, just to kind of put ourselves aside and sacrifice ourselves to save somebody else. See, what's so cool about God is... Um, there are some religions that preach that we, we, we're like God and, and we can be gods, and that's ridiculous. That's blasphemy. But what's really cool is God a lot of times takes his character and, and puts it in us and allows us to do things and to emulate him. He puts us in situations where he says, save that person, pull them from the fire, get serious about it. I know you had a, a full schedule this week, but this person needs your help. So, and, and he also says, save them with fear and burn their garments. Now check this out. In other words, don't fall into the fire that you're supposed to be helping somebody out of. <laughs> you know, if you don't feel you're strong enough to help someone in a situation, get other brothers and sisters involved. Pray. See if there's somebody else who can help and be a witness. Right? Because you may be too close to that to, uh, to jump into that where you may actually start to get singed yourself. We, we were taught as first responders, as police officers and, and uh, firefighters, if there's a, a house on fire or there's an oil spill and a tractor trailer, bad car accident, there's fluid all over the highway, resist the urge to run in and just save somebody. Because if you go down, now we've got to save the original victims and the first responder. It, it's a hard thing to resist, but uh, you, know, you have to because it's for the good of everybody. So just keep that in mind. Verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Third responsibility. God's responsibility in his relationship with us. You mean God has a responsibility to us? If you have a relationship, both sides have responsibility in a relationship. Number one, to him who is able to keep you and me from stumbling. Two, to him who presents us faultless. So we just read something about our responsibility and that we need to continue, we need to abide. Now we're saying that God's going to do it, what gives? And this is where the age-old, again, has been going on for centuries. God is sovereign, absolutely. He has control over this universe. There's nothing that escapes his notice. But man is also a free moral agent. God gave us free will. We make decisions. How the two work together, where the nexus is, I don't think anybody knows. But here's the deal. When we come to the cross and we repent of our sins and we give our life to Christ, okay, we have a responsibility to, to, 
to work in that relationship. And God also fills us with his Holy Spirit. He also guides us. He convicts us. He leads us. So this is a really neat relationship and the beauty of religion. And I just would say this, that anybody here today, while you're listening to the words, this is for you. You could have walked in off the street. Maybe you've never seen the Bible before. Maybe you came in with another person and you're reading this and you're like, wow, this stuff is fantastic. It is available for you as an individual. That's why I love communion. You know, we celebrate communion. I'm within myself. You know, I'm thinking about the Lord and I'm thinking about his return, but I'm also doing it with all you here too, right? So it's a corporate experience as well as an individual experience. And salvation is beautiful because it's for the masses. It's for all of us to understand, but it's also for the individual. So whoever you are, you know, um, to the youngest, to the most mature, uh, The Lord has, he's waiting. He's waiting with open arms for you. I'll read 25 again. To God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. So the purpose, glorify God as he deserves this, and this is where the letter leads off. So Jude opens up, you know, be discerning, watch for these guys who crept into the church unnoticed. Two, He makes a dichotomy between those who truly are believers and those who really kind of came in for the wrong reasons and may not necessarily be believers. Three, as true believers, he helps us to understand our responsibilities to God, to others, right, and God's relationship with us. And four, we run the race to win in the end because the prize, according to this, is the Lord Jesus himself. And I look at this um, as when I read this letter, And all the things that we've learned through this letter, uh, I look at this as as we run the race, like the Apostle Paul speaks about. And we all want to get to the finish line. And when we get to the finish line, the Lord is our daddy, Abba, Father. And he's waiting there at the finish line with open arms. And what's the reward? You know, the big trophy, the crown, the wreath. The reward is the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word every Sunday, every Wednesday, whenever we go through it.